Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to How We Evolve. I've had the fortune in my life to have met a few incredible physicians whose perspective on medicine and life differ from the norm in a way that I think medicine needs to go, one in which good sense goes hand in hand with clinical data. One of those physicians is Dr. Barry Waisglass, who was our medical director at Canadian Cannabis Clinics for our first five years of existence. Barry's wisdom was pivotal not only to our success as a business, but also to me, Joseph, and Hanan as three brash young entrepreneurs. One of those physicians is Dr. Randy Knapping, who is my physician at Deerfields, who constantly reminds me that being in the normal range of many medical tests is nothing to aspire to, because the normal curve, as he says, is comprised mostly of lazy, slovenly people who don't exercise or eat well. And that's a perfect segue to the third such physician whose gentle nature, good sense, and thoughtfulness you will experience in just a few short minutes. His name is Dr. Drew Ramsey. He is one of the few psychiatrists out there who identify as a nutritional psychiatrist. What is nutritional psychiatry, you ask? Well, give a listen and you'll find out. But more, you'll hear some very honest, thoughtful, and profound wisdom from someone who, despite looking and playing the part of someone who has everything figured out, is feeling his way through life just like I am and just like you and most people are. I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right. Well, thank you for making the time, Drew. It's good to see you. Leonard, it's good to see you. Thanks for inviting me on. My pleasure. So a little bit of background before I hop into a list of very thoughtful questions I've put together, if I do say so myself. Um, the background to the podcast is after Field Trip filed for restructuring and I was sent on my way uh, into a new journey, uh, kind of abruptly, uh, I decided to turn this podcast into following that journey, how you pick up the pieces from what was to what is becoming, uh, especially as a man and, and as a person who has often defined myself by my entrepreneurial and professional pursuits, when that gets mm -hmm. taken away and you're kind of left with nothing, how do you pick up the story? And so this conversation is going to focus mostly on nutritional psychiatry and and all the questions I have around that and your background. But I just wanted to give you the frame of why I thought this would be an interesting conversation because food, psychiatry, or mental health all fall into the conversation about how do you pick up the pieces when you got to start rebuilding from what happened. So that's that's just some background context. I really appreciate that, Ronan. I mean, uh, especially around this notion of the things that uh, middle-aged men, if I can call us that, get confronted with. You know, that, that yeah. notion, especially uh, you've had a tremendous amount of entrepreneurial success. Uh, and I've had this phrase that's been popping in my head of, of uh, the notion that, you know, it's almost an assumption it's going to keep growing, keep being better, keep working out, and that that's success. You know, that the, really the way to know it is next year it's you know, it's bigger and it's such a kind of patriarchal notion of success. It's not more connected. Yeah. It's not that like, I don't know, I played more games of chess with my kid or I caught more fish in a lake. Uh, and so I, I really appreciate the invitation for that conversation. Let's definitely talk nutritional psychiatry, but also, you know, any, <laughs> you got me for an hour. Any way I could be of help in your journey, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to contribute to that because, yeah. um, you're, you're, you're the tip of the spear pushing something that is, is someone with a much, much smaller version of field trip going on here in Jackson. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, um, 
it's pioneering and full of wisdom in terms of what you've done. And I think that's probably hard as it's fallen apart or fell apart to, you know, really hang on to that part. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny. So the last interview I did on the podcast, I haven't released it yet was with Scott Galloway. I don't know if you'd listened to the Prof G podcast or yeah, of course, of course. I'm, I'm a huge Prof G fan. I've been wanting yeah. to get him on Friday sessions, but also it's just great to see somebody who's in business and marketing who's just like talking Frank about male mental health. I love yeah. Prof G. Yeah. He, he was great. And it's funny. One of the things he said in our conversation and you touched on it was he said, listen, I know I'm blessed. I know I'm privileged. I got lots of money. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got healthy kids. I can spend all day doing everything that I want. But at the end of the day, if my business or that post I put out there isn't trending the way I want to, that's what dominates my mood. And I'm like, yep, that, that's really what it boils down to for me too. And and it really is a comment. You described it as the patriarchy, but it is really defined. That's a what. I think a lot of, not just men, but I think men in particular, based on a lot of our societal constructs suffer with, which is if the business, if the productivity isn't happening, everything else is secondary. And it's, it's so, uh, unfortunate, frankly, and I know I fall prey to it. So, yeah, I, I like know. the idea of expanding it. Certainly, you know, it's not entirely gendered that I think, you know, both, uh, uh, wherever you are on the gender spectrum, there is that notion of uh, success, ambition, and accomplishment. But I think for men, particularly men in middle age, it's it gets complicated. I think it's why that's you know the majority seventy plus percent, eighty percent of uh, death by suicide is by men. You know, it's right in our demographic, uh, and so it it, it is a uh, it's a powerful issue I think to think about and get under and and, and move beyond that. You know, maybe it's just a patriarchy wanting us all to make big and have power. And, and, and to really think about what are also the alternatives. I'm sort of curious what all that, you know, when you find yourself, when you and Prof G, six successful guys, find yourself in that spot, what are actually the things that work? Yeah. What, what are you finding? Thing. I'm kind of curious. What, what, what have you been finding so far? Because you've been in like in the fryer. Yeah. It's a fair question. Um, I'll tell you what has been the most successful thing for me so far. And it's far from perfect, um, but it's been working. Is and feel free to to comment um, on this. But uh, Doctor Joe Dispenza uh, wrote a book called "Becoming Supernatural," and mm. I've read about a third of it. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but one of the things he talks about is certain meditations. Um, and one of the meditations early in the book is just taking a feeling or a goal or ambition, say you want to get a job or you want to make a million dollars or you want to find a girlfriend or a boyfriend, writing down a list of the things that would feel like if that happened. Um, and then just meditate on those feelings. And so having no inclination to try anything else, at that time, I'm like, cool, I'll do it. And so the word that came up for me was wholeness, that what I'm going to talk about it in men, but it's not exclusive to men just for simplicity of the conversation. What men suffer from quite a bit, it seems, is an ill-defined sense of ego that we're only worthwhile if we are productive, right? Mm. My, my teacher, Erwin, talks about chauvinism 
which is the distortion of the masculine and feminine, turning women into sex objects and men into performance objects. And you just hop up, hop onto social media and you see how that's true. A woman posts a picture and inevitably the first posts are like, oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, you're so pretty. You know, something like that. Right. And you see that happening with women. And, and I don't think we need to debate all of the magazines and social media and, and what that does to the, the female psyche. And for men, it's a performance object, which is if we're not performing, if we're not productive, if we're not working, we're lost. We have no sense of value um, and it's it's a struggle. So how do I move past that? Well, I came up with the word wholeness, which is if I felt whole, if I felt complete without having to do, what would that feel like? And so I started meditating on that. And the feeling that I tried to induce through this meditation was for me, like the first time I kissed my wife, you know, that moment, that anticipation, that feeling of excitement right before you kiss someone for me, mm -hmm. just using that, but it could be anything. It's like in that moment, it seems like nothing else matters. All the anxieties go away. The future looks bright. The past is the past and there's only everything to look forward to. And so I try to adduce that feeling. I tried to bring that up and just meditate on that and feel that for a period of time. And what I found is that even though the meditation ends and I don't feel it as intensely, it kind of raises the resonance a little bit. And that seems to help. Uh, and that's about all that has truly helped so far. Um, of course, spending time with my kids is amazing and all that kind of stuff, but that's the one thing that moves the needle from where I was to where I am right now. Hmm. I appreciate that, Ronan. Thanks for sharing. I like this idea of a, like an invocation and a meditation on a feeling or affective state. It reminds me a lot of um, the Michael Chekhov acting technique. Where okay. Michael, Michael Chekhov took the notion that, that emotions could be held within physical stances and that as you're training as an actor to really, really feel it, you should first um, uh, like uh, go into the, these 12 classic poses. And one of them was expansion and, one of, and, and the contrast and contraction, where you really kind of invoke physically and emotionally this notion of you know, contracting the self down to nothing. And then, and then this expansion to really begin, you know, what does it feel like to, to expand yourself so big that you know, I'm, I'm towering over this whole state even, right? And to really like try and get in that mindset. Um, it reminds me also of one of the ways I, I guess it feels or seems to me clinically as a clinician who's not been uh, fully in the psychedelic space and now is is more so um, of one of the ways that the psychedelics work in, in terms of giving people an affective experience, um, uh, even if it's somewhat brief, uh, that's, that's powerful and resonant and stays with them. And it's like, you know, you're, you're kind of gives yourself a little bit of a mold to try and ease into or lean into. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I find the experience of being alive is the experience of emotion. We are so logic driven in our society. We think first and feel later is how I think most people would describe the state of interaction in this world and physicality. But the truth is, it's the opposite. We feel first 
And then we express that through thoughts. Um, and so I think that's probably why psychiatrists have problems over therapists in general. It's because, I mean, I, I appreciate that what you're describing, but it, it feels the, the therapeutic world where if you sit with patients and sit in clinical practice over and over again, there's something about the brilliance of association and intuition that emerges. And so as you're in the thinking world, there's almost something a little dysphoric about it. Because you live in this world of emotion and, and where that, you know, the thinking and the logic of it and the fixing of it kind of, you know, it's important, right? You're there for a reason and for treatment goals and all that. But the, 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 you, you witness and uh, the power of a, the associative mind. You witness what happens. It's in some ways I've been thinking a lot recently how the clinical room is really one of the first places where AI started to exist, and it wasn't an artificial intelligence, but it was a large language model that got co-created between two very powerful supercomputers. Right. And so that if when your therapist or, uh, you know, uh, uh, says something particular to you, a particular word, you know, your, your, uh, you know, the name of that first pet your child had, you know, you, you, you all have this large language model that you've co-created. And so, um, there, there's a way there's such an affective resonance. And exactly as you said, we, you know, life is about the emotions of life. Like that's what we, that sticks with us. Yeah. It's funny you touch on that. So in, in an earlier episode with um, Susan Stevens, who's an intuitive counselor, I went to high school with her. We were talking and we were talking about field trip and, and just relying on our intuition. And she could see that I was suffering from brain fog and I was, um, and she said, started talking about the experience and field trip. And she's like, the word heartbreak comes up. And as soon as she said that word, it triggered something, an emotional response. Just that one word was like, Phew. I'm like, yeah, that's it. And I guess that's the other lesson I've taken away from all of these conversations, even though I'm not particularly good at it, is from many of the people I've spoken to is that when the shit hits the fan, let yourself fall apart. Let yourself feel all the ugly, negative, scary, sad, uncomfortable emotions as deeply as you need to. Because certainly for me, and I'm not the only one, my first reaction is that sucked, pick up and keep moving. Uh, instead of saying, no, let's let that suck and let me get angry and let me get sad. And let me be hurt and let me feel all of that before I pick up and, and keep moving. Um, and again, I'm still not very good at it, but it seems to be a consistent theme in, in all the people I've spoken to about this. Well, I know there's also this consistent theme that you have to get up. Yeah. Uh, uh, that, that somehow there's something that you've done that's wrong or shameful or, um, you know, heartbreaking, you know, because yeah. it didn't, it didn't work out in the way that we envisioned it or hoped for it or the business plan said it would. And I, and I think it's, I mean, it's such a challenging spot and mental space that you're in, but you know, the, the, what we're all, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of so, um, programmed that narrative of the, you know, the Disney movie of what happens next when you, you know, descend upon us with the next best, greatest, even better version of this with all the lessons you've learned and now triumph. <laughs> and it's kind of, while we all love that movie, I just I think for the majority of us, you know, and certainly as life continues, that actually isn't the narrative. And that actually isn't the only version of bravery or strength. What if you just sat there with the pieces as maybe you're doing now 
and thought about what they mean, what they mean about you, what they mean about um, what you have, you know, to offer and, 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 and not even with the notion of next steps. I mean, it's like not even, uh, it doesn't even feel like an option, right? It's like some ridiculously passive thing. Yeah. It feels totally uncomfortable even thinking about it. Mm. It, uh, it reminds me. <clears throat> so last year we made a documentary still isn't out yet, but it's called, uh, everybody is doing drugs. And it was just, a tried to be an honest look at the emotions behind what's happening in the psychedelic space because just about everything you see when it comes to conversations about psychedelics is about the science because somehow it all has to be about the science to re-legitimize <laughs> yeah to make it legitimate and so we wanted to take the opposite path and you know talk about vulnerability and emotion and feeling and <clears throat> um Right after we finished filming, I had the opportunity to um, meet with Irving Welsh, the the author of Train Spotting and a number of other books. Uh, and he's a very, I guess, vocal <laughs> drug user, uh, especially with psychedelics. His last book, I think, was called uh, uh, "Dead Man's Trousers," with the uh, initials being DMT, um, intentionally designed that way. So he was in Toronto, and so as part of a documentary he was making, and as a follow-up piece to the documentary we were ma making, he and I did 5-MeO-DMT together um, at our clinic in Toronto. And in the weeks before that experience, um, my eldest son had been diagnosed with epilepsy and um, frontal temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, and it had created some friction uh, with my wife about how we responded to it. And I went into the DMT session, a 5-MeO-DMT session, and when I came out of it, all the grief that I hadn't let myself feel for my eldest son came out. Like all of a sudden, all those things that were I was holding back. Because in my mind, in my world, I don't accept the negative outcome that I can keep working and keep working and keep working until there's not a negative outcome. So in the case of my son, mm -hmm. it means we would keep exploring. We would keep trying new things. We would change diet. Mm -hmm. We would look at nutrition, whatever it took such that his path in life would not be affected by this diagnosis. Uh, and through the experience of the DMT, it finally kind of broke down that wall of I'm not going to accept a negative outcome. And I actually started to feel the feelings around this. And um, it was very powerful. It was a very powerful realization, just recognizing that my willingness to not accept a negative outcome. I, the thought process subconsciously was, I don't need to feel grief because if there's no instance in, when there's, in which there is something to grieve, no need for grief. Um, it was this like subconscious process going in my head and well, it feels really tremendously powerful. The process going on in your mind, it feels like is the way that a, a diagnosis and a negative outcome are almost the same thing. Right. Whereas, you know, re really a good diagnosis is actually the most powerful thing in the sense that, that, that starts that, that, that like the appropriate proper treatment, living a life without disability from an illness 
really begins with proper diagnosis. I mean, a, a proper diagnosis. And, you know, it does seem tied in your mind, which I think for all of us with our kids that we don't want them to have anything, right? No mental health stuff, no diagnoses, no meds, <laughs> no, no medical problems. And it, and it's such a burden on them, right? They can't, they can't then actually get sick, get help, you know, in, in a certain way. And if they do, they've, right. I guess what failed our notion of how perfect they are. It, it's, um, uh, yeah, it's a very, uh, powerful moment that you're at. How can I ask? I'm a little sometimes nervous of the psychedelics in the midst of big things like that, especially as a parent. I mean, I'm not a, a very experienced psychonaut at all. Yep. And, and I, and I think, um, being in the nine psychedelic clinical space, there's a certain amount and having a clinical, clinical caseload and, and kids, there's, you know, there's a certain amount of consistency, stability. Um, I would say there's a certain amount of um, expansiveness that I already kind of work, work to contain a little bit. And I'm just wondering for you, like as a dad and a parent, how that, how that kind of fits in. Cause I think, you know, so many families I see are, I want to say are dabbling, but that's kind of how it feels to me. It's like become a possibility. And I, and I find on the clinical side, sometimes you know, as people are facing a big diagnosis or, or thinking about divorce, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to know sometimes where think where these things fit in. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on, on that question? Um, so I can answer I guess, it yeah, more directly. Sort of, yeah. More like during in the time, during in the midst of learning a very powerful piece of family news and something that is just an inherent challenge as a parent, your, your, your child has medical condition. Um, how you understand or how you understood and, and kind of moved thoughtfully towards the use of psychedelics and maybe it was just part of the project. So these kind of two things coincide, but even so, you know, your dad headed in and after this experience, the next day, a couple of days later, you're going to be sitting with your son. Yeah. And, and, and I just was wondering if you share with this in your headspace, how you kind of keep that organized. In this particular case, it was not a challenge for me. Cause again, my mindset was there's no outcome that's negative here. So there's nothing mm -hmm. to grieve. There's nothing heavy here because I'm not going to accept the heavy outcome. And so my mind was like, okay, like I'm doing 5-MEO DMT. This is going to be a great experience. It's going to be cool. Something's going to come out of it. it. It was not at all present in my awareness that there was this heaviness there. Um, and, and so in that particular case, it wasn't a challenge. Um, you know, if I was going to translate that into broader advice, I think my perspective is these realizations come to you, whether it's on psychedelics, which may come fast and hot and heavy, uh, or it may just come to you in a dream or a moment of staring randomly at your wall, looking at the Rolling Stones record, you know, that's that you've uh, put up as a, as a piece of artwork. And so it's still going to come. So it's just a question of how intentional do you want to be in terms of confronting these and, being prepared to accept that sometimes it's going to show you things that you're not necessarily expecting. And for me, I'm okay with that. And, and maybe it's a process of the fact that I've done, you know, meditation work and spiritual work and, and coaching and therapy for 20 years now that I've come to be open to whatever's shown to me in these mm. circumstances. 
Um, but I, I, I guess I would really go back to the intentionality of just making that decision, being like, are you prepared to take the blue pill uh, and, and see? And that means you don't know. You know, I think if I was going to try to articulate the single largest experiential experiential element of psychedelics in my mind is learning to give up control because <laughs> they're taking it away from you. You can try and fight it. You can try and fight it hard and you can control it to some degree, but you can't control it all. Uh, and giving up control is probably one of the most freeing things, especially when you can be aware of what you're trying to control. In my case, I wasn't aware that I was trying to control my emotions in that circumstance. And so that was the revelation for me. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's how I think about it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it's helpful. I mean, I think it, 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 there are a couple elements I pulled out of it, you know, with that notion of, you know, what, uh, I don't want to say guidelines necessarily, but because we're talking specifically about parents and psychedelics and this notion that, you know, if you're really new to inner work and losing control feels really awful to you, and there's a lot of stuff also that you're holding in that you're aware of that other people aren't, which I see with a lot of patients where, you know, it's hard for them to let it out in a normal therapeutic process for whatever, you know, for a variety of good reasons, but the psychedelics yeah. loosen things up. And, and as you say, you're, you're in a stance and, uh, you know, uh, sailing on 20 years of exploring this stuff and having heard and confronted hard things about the self. And if that's not the work you had, not that you need to do 20 years, but maybe it's not, you know, the best place to start a wild, big, huge, hard, you know, powerful revelatory journey. And yeah, for me, um, I'm not a doctor, not a clinician, <laughs> uh, mildly experienced psychonaut, but most of my work was not with psychedelics. It's only been introduced in the last couple of years. MDMA is a good place to start. It tends to be very gentle. And I think the hardest part for a lot of people is just letting themselves feel. And MDMA, by and large, opens up to a lot of feeling of love and, and euphoria and, and positive emotions. It can open up things into the negative side, but tends to be a lot less scary than, than psilocybin or DMT or anything along those lines in terms of what it's going to reveal to you. So uh, I know that's not a technically legal medical opinion right now, but um, you don't have a legal for a lot medical of people, opinion. You're allowed to say whatever you want. It's the beauty of being a doctor. That's the great thing about not being a clinician. So um, uh, I think we should, uh, well, thank you for that. I think we should probably talk, you want to talk brain food? And it sounds like <laughs> this podcast is partially about your quest as a man to uh, sit with what you experienced over the last few years as a very a powerful public and bold entrepreneur building, you know, what I think to date is the largest clinical psychedelic business, certainly an ambition that, that I saw and certainly in terms yeah. of making public waves. And so, you know, I, I'd love to think about how food fits in, you know, and I don't know the best way to do that is, is raging, you know, starting with maybe some of what questions you have, but also what you're, maybe struggling with. Sure. Um, well, why don't we start with uh, some of the basics because nutritional psychiatry was actually a practice area, a discipline. I don't know exactly what the right term is that I hadn't heard of. I had been for a long time 
being a little bit of a biohacker and a hypochondriac, I always try the new thing, whatever the next fad is by and large, depending mm-hmm. on how easy it is to adopt. I'm, I'm super into it. So it means I've always been exploring what's healthy food, what's not healthy food, trying to eat healthy and all that kind of stuff. But I'd never heard of nutritional psychiatry as a, as a discipline. So why don't we start with that? What is nutritional psychiatry? And the second question I wrote down here is, what is the difference between nutritional psychiatry per se? And we've had the pleasure of having Dr. Andy Weil on this podcast a couple of times, integrative psychiatry, or is it just kind of a subset of integrative psychiatry in your mind? Okay. The the first question, I, I define nutritional psychiatry as the use of food. And I'm pretty specific about that in my work. Uh, to optimize mental health. What are the daily foods that each of us should look for and eat uh, to to really optimize the mental functioning? If we focus not as we have on heart health, weight, diabetes, not, not that those are very important, obviously, but those are all drivers of mortality. If we focus on drivers of uh, morbid, morbidity and, and disability, right, those are all mental health disorders for the most part. Those are things that take us uh, out of living our best life. And, and so right. it's the use of nutrition, meaning food to optimize brain health and to treat and prevent mental health disorders. And those two words, uh, being very important and different, right? Treatment of mental health disorders means the top driver of disability in the world, depression, which is what I, I mostly treat depression, anxiety. Mm-hmm. Can I do a better job treating depression if I include uh, some thoughts, advice, evaluation, coupons, <laughs> recipes in my work with patients. If I say lentils right. enough times, uh, does it make a difference? If I give a lentil recipe, if I ask you about your history of lentils and so that, and, and the reason you hadn't heard about it, Ronan, is that it didn't really exist. I, I think to date, there are really only three or four of us in America who truly identify as nutritional psychiatrists on the clinical right. level and myself, Umanadu, Chris Palmer, uh, Georgiatis, I guess five, I'd put Emily Deans on that list. I mean, there are a number of other people who, you know, I think embracing these ideas and, and certainly there are lots of people in, in integrative health, integrative medicine, or integrative psychiatry who've been interested in nutrition. Now, now that probably has a little asterisk on it. Often that's been to the detriment of patients. There've been a lot of people who've spent a lot of money, uh, had patients spent a lot of money on a lot of supplements and food sensitivity testing and all kinds of uh, stuff that doesn't have a lot of evidence around it. Um, I, I tried to be really one of the early people. Uh, our first book, uh, The Happiness Diet, was in 2011. And our first presentation at the American Psychiatric Association uh, was in 2006. And ever since then, every year, a couple of years, we, we've done everything. <laughs> we had Chef David Boulay come to the American Psychiatric Association, <laughs> which, is, nice. which was a totally packed house, right? And, and, and there's some way there's no, like, I can go over all the evidence. No one cares. You bring David Boulay and you like show his sauces getting poured over fish and everybody's convinced. Like you didn't have to put look at any data. So, um, so there's a, there's a real, um, uh, rich now scientific evidence looking at how food impacts, uh, again, the prevention and the treatment. So can, does the risk of a mental health disorder like depression have anything to do with what you eat and your dietary pattern? And the answer very clearly seems yes. If you look at one of the more recent meta-analyses, a a population that eats a Western dietary pattern of lots of ultra-processed food is going to have about an 18.2% increased risk of depression 
compared to a population that eats a more, you know, how would we say traditional style, Mediterranean style diet. And then, you know, even cooler than that, Ronan, I used to be a little twitchy in these interviews where, you know, I'd try and talk about food and I'd couch and I'd need to bring up like Zoloft six times and talk about the need for evidence. But over the past four or five years, there have now been five or six randomized clinical trials in patients with clinical depression. The most recent was in young men with clinical depression, which there has mm. never, ever been another clinical trial that I've ever seen for young men with depression. First one, 2022. I mean, it shows where we are. Thank goodness, I guess is what we should say. But the men trial found that 36% of young men who had definitive clinical depression, given only two nutritional psychiatry counseling sessions, 36% went to full remission. And so you, you begin to see data like that, and you begin to think, especially that these are augmentation studies. It's taking folks who are in treatment, you know, patients who sit on my couch every day, and making sure that they have heard the latest science about how food impacts uh, mental health. And so, you know, and then in, the, in my sense is nutritional psychiatry. And the, and the difference, I see nutritional psychiatry as one of the foundational elements of integrative health and, and, and the way that I, our clinic, and, and I've been viewing this more recently, um, and, uh, and my podcast will have you on mental fitness, it is about the nutritional psychiatry is one of those core tenets of mental fitness, that if we are going to want to seek and have and maintain mental health, we, we've got to do it differently. Like it, the reason the system in mental health is not working in America is not because SSRIs do or don't work. It's, that's, that's the reason mental health isn't working in America is we don't have a culture that is oriented around cultivating the core tenets of mental fitness. And I think if everybody gets on board with that, we're, we're going to, we're going to have a fantastically different feeling to our culture. Yeah. I appreciate that. That, <clears throat> In fact, that impetus in a different set of words was my motivation for starting field trip, which was, it wasn't about psychedelics. It was, can you engage people in conversations around mental and emotional health and well-being that aren't open to it? And so I always use the archetype of a 28 year old Pittsburgh bro <laughs> being like, could I get that on a, th that guy on a therapist couch? Probably not. Can I get that guy to try mushrooms? Maybe. And if I can get him to try mushrooms, then I can open up the conversation for all of this kind of stuff about mental and emotional health and, and wellness. You know, it's funny. I, I treat a lot of uh, 28 year old men on my couch. And so I, I, and, and I see the framework a little differently. I appreciate that. And I think particularly being here in Jackson, you know, there's a certain archetype of like a uh, alcohol use disorder is a really huge problem yeah. here. It's about twice the national average as our suicide rate is twice the national average which wow. is, is kind of concerning and interesting given that uh, Teton County is one of the wealthiest counties in the country. And, and so you have this really kind of um, interest and, and uh, curiosity and engagement around, around mental health. But there's a hope that, you know, there are people who, for whatever reason, they're not going to go to a 12-step program or, or engage in AA. They're not going to go to rehab, but they really got to address their alcohol use disorder or they're going to die. Right. And, and, and so I do, I, I am really hopeful that, that, that interest, um, is what brings people in. That's what I found to be true with food, Ronan. I, one of the things I loved about it, I've been, I don't know, probably 15, 20 years. I've been talking about food and mental health. I was looking at some of my like way back original posts on some of the Columbia psychopharm listservs. And they're like, about like omega three fats as like an eager young resident. And, uh, uh, but you know, one of, 
one of the things that, that's really uh, been wonderful to see about this this uh, growth of food and the, the interest in food and nutrition is the way that it brings people in the door. And I was just thrilled early on to see, you know, people were inviting me to talk about, you know, if you say, oh, let's talk about suicide prevention. Not a lot of mid-schoolers are going to be like, come on down, right? Say, hey, let's yeah. talk about foods that you can put in your cafeteria to help with mood and help, um, you know, and, and, and help potentially with anxiety or even ADHD or, you know, even if they don't help, these are the foods we want kids to be eating to, to, to help them, uh, you know, for example, you know, deal with some of the side effects of the medications. People are happy to have that conversation, you know, and suddenly now you're in a school, you're in a community center. My favorite were like with the farmers, where I'd be like in farmers markets talking about mental health. And so, you know, m my hope is, uh, you know, w w whether it's food or psychedelics, um, uh, or all the, I think, excitement I see now about psychotherapy and, and trauma work that you know, there is an opening, it feels, of people really, yeah. you know, starting to explore their mental health. And maybe a way to put it is we, we hope that young 28-year-old bro in Pittsburgh is going to really understand that part of modern masculinity and part of being successful at, at our age is really taking uh, an accountability for the self, engaging in diligent, consistent, hard work on the self. Um, and then whether you end up on the therapist couch or you do some psilocybin, there's lots of options for you, but that, that, that initial process and curiosity really I think has to be, um, encouraged and fostered in a lot of young men today. 100% agree. And, uh, vulnerability is the word that comes up, right? Men, men in particular, but not limited to, you know, are taught to not be vulnerable. And don't cry, all that kind of stuff. Suck it up, buttercup. I heard that a lot in my life, and I said that a lot in my life too. And, uh, and I think a lot of people are coming to the realization that that's not only counterproductive, but indulging in your vulnerability um, can be a superpower. It can open you up to a whole bunch of things that you never thought possible. Um, I think so. I mean, vulnerability often is just about being scared. You know, in the sense that, you know, if you feel vulnerable, there's an idea of some fragility or something about you that the knowledge that you're a big, you know, that you're a crier or you're upset or you have feelings is, uh, you know, somehow going to make the world more dangerous for you. And, and I've really found quite the opposite to be true. It's like one of those um, words that comes up as we do um, talk about masculinity, male mental health. Uh, Greg Scott Brown, my buddy, and I have the series on Men's Health Magazine, which is really great. We uh, interviewed over 100 men and women about male mental health, and many of them have mental health conditions. Um, folks like uh, the Bonobo, uh, Bonobo um, uh, uh the CEO, Andy Dunn, has this great book, Burn Raid, who has bipolar disorder and is a CEO, who sort of talks openly yeah. about it. And so it's been a really wonderful series. And this word vulnerability comes up a lot. And it's one I've really been thinking about because, you know, with that is the notion of, I would also say the when and the where, and that it's a really, really bad idea to be vulnerable with certain people or in certain settings, or I'd even say with most institutions. You know, we've entered an era where people are really, are trying to be open and honest about their mental health, which I think is great. But it's just, you know, there's, I wouldn't even say there's a time and the place because I don't want to shut down the conversation, but I do think there's, you know, with vulnerability, there are people in your life um, who are prepared for that and, and, and who deserve that, I would also say. And then there are right. other people and in institutions who they're not going to know what to do with it necessarily. And, and it's, um, and it's a hard thing for men, as you know, I completely agree. And I would offer that 
a lot of vulnerability does not have to be expressed outwardly. A lot of it can just being be being in check with your own feelings and, and being honest with them. Will you say a little bit more about that, Ronan, like how that manifests for you? Like, like I think it's such a beautiful idea. Well, I, the anecdote from the beginning of not being aware that I closed myself off to the feeling of grief. It's like, I didn't need to tell anybody that. No one had to be privy to that. I don't need mm. to be sharing that with anyone. But the fact that I can now, I'm more able to get in touch with the feeling of grief gives me an ability you know, the way Irwin talks about it is emotions are just information, right? It's, it's so, if you think about it through the lens of a CEO, if I'm more able to tap into an emotional awareness of how I respond to situations, then in this conversation, I may be more aware that you're uncomfortable with this topic or this line of thinking. No one needs to know that. I don't need to tell that to my institution or my boss or my wife, but it's powerful for me. Um, so that, that's a single example. Of course, I think vulnerability as an outward expression of ways to build an intimate relationship is also very important. Um, but you kind of have to be vulnerable with yourself to understand what you're feeling before you can accurately probably share it with another person. It's fantastic. As you're talking about, I hadn't thought about this, but I think what made me, uh, uh, there was a shift in me as a therapist probably a few years in, or that shift of needing to be an expert to understanding the power and in, in, in some vulnerability and of not knowing. And that, that some of the, I think it was like some of my favorite phrases in the clinical room is like, I, I don't quite, under, I, I'm not, I don't understand this or, or like, help me understand this a little better or uh, some, something around this. Um, idea of being vulnerable with uh, uh, my lack of knowledge and right. being vulnerable with my lack of understanding, especially in my role where so often people are really, you know, wanting, a, I don't know, an expertise and a knowingness about things. Yeah. I, I had the occasion to meet, he wasn't prime minister then, he is prime minister now, Justin Trudeau, about 10 years ago. And someone asked him a question about international politics and he riffed off, you know, the pretty standard answer, politically spun answer. And it just annoyed me because I'm like, come on, can you just speak for real for once and give us an honest mm -hmm. answer? And so I asked him, I'm like, have you ever in a question like that just answered? I don't know. Let me look into it and get back to you. And he said, I did it once and I got, hand in the media for weeks for doing so and he never did it again and i'm like i get it and and so i, I respect you know you in particular that i think a lot of people look at you as a as a doctor as a professional to have the answers and to be honest and even not necessarily having to admit you don't know the answer but needing more information to make a an informed opinion is uh, is important I know the process works. I feel very convicted to that and, and, and uh, that that is something that all of us in health and in mental health uh, witness, something that I would say is, is even sacred. Um, that, that as I've struggled with burnout at times, that's what some of my favorite supervisors have sort of said, you've, for, you've forgotten that this is sacred work. Right. And uh, yeah, but it is, uh, 
I think it's a lot easier than politics, but I think it also speaks to some of the struggle that we're having right now that, that, you know, there's, there's a posturing and an argument and uh, kind of focus on a select set of, um, I would say when it comes to the day-to-day life of us getting along and prospering reasonably small issues that are made very big. And there, there's not a lot of good ideas flowing around. There's not a lot of the values that we've always wanted and respected, uh, 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 you know, that, that are kind of essential for freedom, like mutual respect, but you know, if we don't, let's not, do, let's not, let's not head into uh, politics, but um, it's certainly, uh, well, it's something in some ways as we're talking about masculinity and we're talking about what I would call modern masculinity. There's something that hopefully will continue to shift as people see that, you know, it, it hasn't really worked very well for men or for women. You know, the, the patriarchy hasn't just failed women, you know, I mean, like one yeah. of the most beautiful parts of the Barbie movie to me, which I thought was such a great male mental health movie was the acknowledgement of, of kind of where it comes from this sort of desperate need for the gaze, for the approval. And that when that doesn't happen, the kind of corruption of that, you know, innocent and loving desire into something hostile and misogynistic. And, and, and you know, it feels that, um, we're at a moment now where people are thinking and talking about that. And then for those of us who are fathers, you know, there's that, there's that really salient question, right? Ronan of like, well, you know, if you, with all of your success are struggling with, with this, as you sit with, as you say, the pieces, you know, like, is there a way that we like raise our sons and daughters explicitly differently? It's a, question that's constantly top of mind and you have children right yeah yeah we've got, we've got a 12 year old daughter and a nine year old almost 10 year old son okay yeah my mine are seven and four and a half seven and a half and four and a half the first thing we can do is just give space for their emotions right that's really like whatever you're feeling it's okay feel it. And, and I, I know some, you know, I don't know if I actually had the space to have that as a kid, but I certainly know I didn't feel like I had the space to have like be open with my emotions as a kid. And, uh, so I'm just trying to give them that as a starting point. One of the things I've come to realize, like as, as, as an entrepreneur, you know, I'm always like, we can fix this. We can change this. Like we can, we can fix modern mas- masculinity. This is something that can be solved through proper uh-huh. execution and all that kind of stuff. And I've come to realize that we can, but it's not going to happen in a generation and everything, all of the issues about chauvinism and masculinity and toxic masculinity and femininity and, and all of that kind of stuff. I think we can get there. But it's going to take a good few generations because it's just got to move incrementally that our kids may be a little bit more or hopefully a lot more vulnerable with their emotions than maybe we were. And maybe the next generation is going to be a lot more aware of why not everything has to be scaled. You know, I re- appreciated the point you made and it was one of the mistakes we made at Field Trip, which is the work you do as a therapist, as a psychiatrist, as a psychedelic guide or sitter is, is sacred work. And maybe it's the truth that that should not be scaled. But we thought about the work as being kind of like a widget in a cog in a machine that 
you have eight hours, each session is two hours. You should do four sessions a day. That math makes sense to us. And then you realize that that's not, that's not scalable. That's, that's not how it works. That the, everything else around the experience besides the sitting in the room across from the client is part of the experience. And that takes work and effort and time and emotion and consideration. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's one of the early mistakes we made at field trip was thinking we could, we could scale that and, and just make it a little bit more of a operation. Well, I think in the business model, there's, you know, there is the, the challenge of, um, how um, how does this function and pay rent? I, I also, uh, and I think it's a luxury that we've had as a mental health clinic to, to have no need for this. Um, and I felt very, very grateful and in some ways very blessed to not, not have a need to add psychedelic medicine for financial incentives or for um, branding. Um, uh, but really out of the evidence, it felt if, if you're really, if you're going to be an evidence-based mental health clinician, you know, I, I couldn't be a hypocrite because I heard myself saying things like, if, if you're going to be an evidence mental health clinician in 2023 and you're not talking about food, you're not paying attention to the evidence. I'm like, yeah. And I think that's true. But you say the same thing about psychedelics. They're, num- yeah. they're you know, the psilocybin trials have put up numbers that, that have not really been seen. Uh for certain disorders, there, there's there's no other treatment that's ever existed that you give people a, a couple times, and there's an eighty percent reduction, eighty plus percent reduction of alcohol consumption, and half the people are sober. That's like magic, yeah. And so you can't ignore that if you care about patients, and and at the same time, you, you know, you can't you can't really ignore the history of psychiatry. We've known ketamine's a powerful antidepressant for twenty years, and we haven't trusted patients in a certain way. To, to, to give them that option out of, you know, I guess we could say fears of the opioid epidemic, except what's a little strange is that's all happening right at the height of the opioid epidemic. So yeah. something has happened where there's been a bit of a disempowerment, maybe not a bit, but the idea that there are a number of options that work for mental health conditions um, and that you don't have to quote unquote, oh, fail everything as we like to say, um, or be quote unquote treatment resistant. That one, that's not how everyone you know, in the general public is thinking about these compounds or trying them. And and two, that that's kind of um, probably if you really follow the safety data and the indications, not really uh, an I would say like accurate way to approach these things. Um, right. And so. And at the same time, there have been a lot of, you know, I appreciate your humbleness and sharing with us some of, you know, what happens. And I think uh, in terms of scalability and, um, you know, one, one of the things I think, you know, I didn't experience you exactly as trying to scale. I didn't think you were trying to make the cheapest, fastest, <laughs> you know, most efficient psychedelic experience no. ever. I, I thought I saw you as trying to do something very bold, uh, not having known you before this, uh, which was that you, you, you were trying to really plant a flag that this mattered, that it could be done, that it could be done in America, that there were already compounds that, that can be, that can harness the state and, um, and that people were interested. And, and so, um, and at some point you have to decide how long are you, you know, we, we, we our, our journeys are, are three hours and we have a hard time containing it to that. And I think that the hardest part of this movement 
is for people to separate uh, and kind of find that delta between the, the power of these medicines, activating something healing inside of people or giving people powerful experiences or journeys or just having a powerful psychopharmacological neuroplastic experience. And then what's that delta? What's that difference of being in a protocol in a space with a guide who, who, who um, is a very skilled psychotherapist? And I think that's the question that, that it's, it, it's very individual, right? Some people go yeah. in and they have amazing healing experiences and not a lot gets said. And that's been the majority, especially with ketamine of what's happened in psychiatry, but it's still right. I mean, the, the biggest ketamine assisted psychotherapy paper is what 607 patients for 17 trials and every single protocol in the study in the meta, it's not a meta analysis because they can't do it. It's because they're all such different protocols and that seems yeah. like really messy. And then you start working with these medicines and, you know, there, there, there's something about uh, that dyad or that, that kind of group, the patient and the clinicians working together to find a path forward of how these medicines may or may not be useful that I think doesn't, I wouldn't say it doesn't, it's just, it's important to continually emphasize. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And to your point on field trip, no, we weren't certainly trying to commoditize it into McDonald's uh, by any stretch, but we wanted to show that it could be built and and scale in terms of reaching a lot of people and being an efficient operation so most people could access it um because otherwise cost becomes a barrier insurance becomes a barrier um and so that that was certainly the thinking and yeah it it much like cannabis medicine so i'm not sure if you were aware but before field trip myself and, and Joseph and Hanan and Ryan uh, had started a company called Canadian Cannabis Clinics, which was doing cannabis medicine in Canada. Now it was focused on doing good cannabis medicine. Uh, it wasn't, you know, the long beach doctor who for 50 bucks would like write you a recommendation because your elbow hurts. Our doctors took it seriously. And it was interesting when we started. <laughs> I remember we, we launched at a, at a conference called Primary Care Today, and we had a booth set up, and it said, medical marijuana starts here, right? Just because we wanted to start educating doctors. And doctors would walk along the, the hallway in which our booth was set up. They would look at our sign, and then they'd give us a wide berth. They did not want to talk to us. They didn't want to be close to us. And they walked around us because uh, cannabis was so far outside of their comfort zone. And and over the course of a couple of years, that really shifted. And one of the things that I became aware of was one of the reasons doctors didn't like cannabis ignoring the historical stigma was that it doesn't fit into a nice pharmaceutical mold. Dosing is hard. It, you know, each each product is going to be slightly different. You don't know how to titrate. And they're like, so I don't want anything to do with it. And I'm like, but it's working for so many people. We have thousands and thousands of people who it's working for, but because it's uncomfortable for you, you don't want to touch it. Now we were fortunate. And I would say we were thoughtful in that because we we're focused on practicing good medicine. And I have to give a shout out to our medical director, Dr. Barry Waysglass for helping us implement this, every patient we saw, we wrote a referral back to their doctor. Say we started Dr. Drew on cannabis, you know, one gram a week, whatever it was, uh, we will provide a follow-up in a few months. And in a few months when the patient came back, lo and behold, most of them showed improvement. And then they went back to their doctor and not only did their doctor have our referral note saying they're showing improvement, 
that patient was now saying this really helped. Maybe it didn't help my back pain directly, but you know what? I slept through the night for the first time in months last week, and that's made a huge difference. And after hearing that enough and enough and enough, doctors started to shift their opinion. And it, But it was driven by the ground roots people of people who are like, I want to try cannabis because I'm sick of my opioids. I'm sick of my, you know, my sleeping mats. I'm tired of feeling so dull on antidepressants. I want to try something else. Um, this is a really interesting aspect of the psychedelic music, the cannabis, but in the psychedelic movement too, where, and we're really uh, been thinking very like carefully and thoughtfully as best we can about this of, of like who gets it. I mean, you can create whatever protocols and criteria you want, but at the end of the day, a lot of times patients, you know, have decided this is a good next step for them. And not always, yeah. right? But, you know, you don't seek out a psychedelic medicine clinic uh, often unless you know, you're seriously considering this is a good step for you or have decided is, is some people say they really know this is the next step for them. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about the equity of that, you know, both from the price uh, and pricing and cost standpoint, but also more than that from the um, sort of access from the hierarchical power structure of how medicine exists. Right? Yeah. That, that I think one of the things that appeals to people about psychedelic medicine is the ability to access it by and and not have to quote unquote be sick or be ill, right? To, to or to define the pain in a different way. It's a um, you know, you're, you're, uh, one of our favorite clinicians here is a, a spiritual director is her, is her official title cool. and training. And she's a past Episcopalian priest, an incredible guide, you know, this notion of, you know, pe people, yes, they're struggling with depression and anxiety, but what Amy's really specialized in is, is the type of spiritual pain and growth that people at times are looking for. Yeah. And that's kind of the point I was driving to a little bit, which was one of the things that I found very effective about cannabis medicine as well as psychedelic medicine is patients, people, I won't say patients, and we actually had a policy to try and not say patients in field trip because it automatically categorizes a person. Um, people could have an active role in their health. Right. With cannabis medicine, they had to self-titrate. They had to explore different strains and figure out what worked for them. They were an active participant as opposed to the traditional, we'll call it medical mill of you're depressed, here's your antidepressant next kind of thing. And well, you get your no, ability to move on. I, mean, I, think that, I think that happens certainly to some people. I think that's like the worst of psychopharma. I, I think the other thing is you're getting people in that model actually to engage in the medical model in a certain way, yeah. right? That, that you're, you're treating it more like medicine. You're giving people, you know, it's not they're going to their corner store or, or you know, and, or wherever deli and, and grabbing a baggie, right? They're, they're now taking things that have, you know, one, they're safer, right? I'm sure you've seen some of the data coming out of New York as they've tried to implement something like some huge, like 75% of all the cannabis samples were like contaminated with a coli and just like all this nasty stuff. So you're, you're yeah. kind of increasing quality, but you're also having that engagement, which I yeah. think is, you know, from a harm reduction model, just so wholly missing when it comes to substance uh, use um, and, and, and the kind of engagement and partnership with patients around harm reduction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I, my sense is, is that like empowerment is a big part of the whole process. You know, it may be part of the placebo effect, but feeling empowered to be a part of it as opposed to a passive participant is, yeah, is valuable. And that it's, that it's yours. That's actually why I call pa people patients, um, uh, being a physician and, and, you know, for a long time there were people get called clients and I didn't really like that because it felt like a business. But the reason I call my patients patients 
isn't to in any way degrade them or create a hierarchy. It's to speak to the obligation that I have to them that isn't like a normal relationship. Right. And that it's That's a, fair. it's a, but I, but I also appreciate the, you know, the very powerful stigmatizing notion of that, you know, that, that, that you're sick. Um, yeah. and, and it, you know, I haven't found a better word, but I, I want to, <laughs> I, I want to communicate something to people that I work with to help them heal that, um, it's, it's not a, it's not a, like a, a client corporate relationship. It's not a friendship. No. It's a, it's a, it's something clinical and, and something, as I said, sacred and powerful and, and very, um, obligated. Yep. I think that's very fair. Ronnie, and I appreciate you, that. You eating lentils as you're like in this recovery process, you know, like the lentils. <laughs> I just want to like, like, got, like looking at the clock, got to get hardcore here about your, <laughs> Like, is that a powerhouse? I think it's like Lynn Polian's favorite. Since Prof G was on here, I can't. I was saving this one if he ever has me on his podcast. I'm not sure I'll ever be big enough, but I hope. But I was going to say that the lentils I heard are, are Napoleon's favorite food, or were Napoleon's favorite food. <laughs> there you go. Like, that's so it's a, a nice transition back. Uh, so Len, I, I, I do have lots of questions. So why don't we hop into that? Um, but this con the nice thing about this podcast is like there's no agenda we can talk about whatever um and so if this conversation seems you more interesting we'll go down nutritional psychiatry at some point so i take full responsibility of having done that and then drifted off <laughs> no, no it's it's very welcome uh, maybe i should call this the drifting podcast uh so so yes let's 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 talk a little bit more practical which is um beyond lentils what, tell me more about the advice you give to clients. Like when I, I go to a doctor who, you know, is very focused on, on preventative medicine. And he's like, mm -hmm. if it grows out of the ground, if it swims, if it flies, if it walks, eat it. If it comes out of a crinkly bag, don't yeah. <laughs> very simple rules. Um, but what is, what is the mechanism of action? Do you think of, of the food changes? Like where I, I'm a, I, I love, data. I love science, but what I think what we've all come to see is that big meta analysis that don't have necessarily an explanatory mechanism of action of why what we see is actually happening often get challenged or overturned. Butter was terrible. Margarine was great. Margarine is terrible. Butter is great. like, it really is friggin' hard to keep up on what is healthy and what is not. And and especially in a social media world where you have so many people, you know, I wrote down a list of things that I'd like to get your perspectives on, like gluten, good, bad, indifferent, I wanna, I, individually. I know. I feel like I could tell you it's like gluten, organic, coconut oil, ketosis, um, artificial flavorings. Uh, hold on. I'm going to the microbiome and inflammation. And I get... <laughs> I was going to add GMO and glyphosate to GMO, the equation, right. but yes. Of course. How could I forget the GMOs and the UFOs? They're here too. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to make fun of it, Ronan. I think no. it's that when you ask how I start, I try and start differently. And I try and yeah. first accept that we're in a world that is very toxic for people around nourishment. And that a lot of the messages people are getting are around the issues that, that really aren't the main problem. And that when we oversimplify it, the problems is crinkly stuff or ultra processed food or, or food that was, you know, uh, what Mark, Mark Hyman likes to say, the food that uh, man made, not the food that God made. <laughs> I, 
I think is a good way to put it. Um, or, you know, if, uh, making sure, you know, uh, eat plants, not factor food that was made in plants. There's a lot of different ways that people can say that, that simple notion, stop eating processed food. As a nutritional psychiatrist, and it's really one of the first ones, I got really interested in how my skills as a, as a mental health professional and psychiatrist could be used to help people understand their relationship with food and the emotions coming up around food, the patterns they learned about food to set goals for themselves that weren't what I was hearing, right? The goals were around salt, saturated fat, and calories. And I found, one, most people didn't really know what those were. You know, even most people today ask physicians, like, what is cholesterol? What's it look like? What's it do in the body? Most of us don't, don't know, right? Or didn't know. Yeah. have a very limited notion of that. Um, you know, same thing with a lot of nutritional advice. You know, ask most healthcare professional, tell me your five top sources of vitamin E that you prescribe to patients. And you know, we have our supplements. As you said, that medical model, we, we like knowing how many milligrams. And, and so I try to approach a really first understanding somebody's relationship with food and, and seeing that as a proxy by which they, I'm beginning to explore with them and understand their framework of how they care for themselves, how they view their mental fitness, right? If they say, oh, I, I make sure and eat these things because of this, I really pay attention to that, right? Where they're, they're already trying to use food as medicine or, you know, I've never thought about it, doc. Right. This is going to be fun. Right? You never thought about sardines. Like you never, <laughs> the psychotherapy is going to be different. <laughs> or whether it's harassing the young guys they treat in college about pesto, which is like near constant for some of them, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, th there's a way that, again, first understanding that relationship and the dietary pattern, right? uh, uh, meaning just day in, day out, what's it look like? You, know, you either eat broccoli some of the time or you don't. You eat anchovies or you don't, right? You, your dietary pattern has, you know, out of your 21 meals a week, right? You know, are, are four of them fast food? You know, if you're a young man in America, you know, probably 80% of those are either fast food or a Chipotle. And so figuring out how even don't, in- Don't, don't the, diss Chipotle, man. Actually, one of my favorite pieces of content I have yet to make is how to brain healthy up or whatever I'd say. Eight, eight amazing ways to brain healthy up your Chipotle order because you can go into Chipotle and you can just do a disaster of processed food or you can go to Chipotle and you can actually eat the best brain food on the planet at probably one of the best right. price points. And so it, it's, I'm not going to dish on Chipotle. Um, All right, good. Uh, the, and we don't take any Chipotle money. Uh <laughs> Just to disclose that. Um, so approaching it with an assessment of kind of the, uh, thinking about skills, thinking about dietary pattern, helping people understand the connection between food and mental health. It, it's a little confusing, right? And it's new and there's so much, you know, it, it, so much buzz about gluten, for example, that it kind of obscures what, what I call uh, and I'm looking for my uh, latest book here, um, which I should have a kind of, I have a, I only have like the German copy, um, <laughs> but uh, eat to be depression and anxiety. We go through these kind of big shifts in the science, right? 10 years ago, there's no way I would have asked you about fermented foods in your diet because we didn't know or think about the microbiome. You yeah. know, f 15 years ago, I wouldn't have asked you about, um, you know, rashes or um, whether they're inflammatory disorders in your uh, you know, family or much about like how your bowels work, but today the microbiome and inflammation are central tenants of how we think about mental health and brain functioning. Um, think about nutrient density. Some foods just have more nutrients per calories than other, a clam, for example, top source of B12, three ounces of clam have something like over a thousand percent of your daily need of vitamin B12, hmm. right? 
so just there are these very nutrient dense foods and helping people really throughout well, i think all of my work my cookbook eat complete this most recent book eat to be depression and anxiety um even the first book the happiness diet having lots of recipes and having also directing people towards certain nutrient dense foods and food categories um and, and then in the book and kind of in clinic I, I try to not overwhelm people you know people aren't coming to see me uh, to just work on their diet. They're coming to see me because they're struggling in their marriage or in their profession or because their startup is, you know, just falling, falling apart. Uh, and, and, you know, and food has to be a piece of it. You know, none of us should be foolish enough to think all you got to do is stop eating gluten. And, you know, except for the, I don't know, million people who uh, have celiac disease and don't know it, those people, it'll be revolutionary. Everyone else, <laughs> not so much. That's not, that's not going to totally cure mental health. Um, yeah. eating a diet that doesn't lead to inflammation, weight gain, digestive disruption, that probably certainly will help people uh, achieve better mental health. Do you see any points where nut nutritional psychiatry diverges from, you know, you touched on it before, but cardiac health, um, metabolic health. Yeah, I think health, there are a few places they, that I would say are, are, um, um, uh, places of debate, right? The, the cardiac dietary recommendations tend to be a low cholesterol, low saturated fat, low salt diet. The, the nutritional psychiatry recommendations, first of all, you know, there's not as much data. And so there's a way that, that it, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of um, speak up to that. But I would say that if, you know, you think about something like a salt recommendation, salt recommendations are really for people who eat processed foods, Right? If you're right. cooking whole natural food and using the salt shaker, you're going to have a real hard time eating too much salt for the most part. Um, right. Yeah, dietary cholesterol. You know, dietary cholesterol, whether it should be a major focus of health policy, is really, I would argue, debatable. Um, and people get really right. polarized in this debate. Uh, you know, it, it essentially begins to, uh, I would say, be one of the legs that the plant-based movement stands on, and one of the ways that. I would say health policy and nutritional policy in America has gotten a little derailed. You know, the, the big question is for you know, the last 20 years, do you eat meat or not? And it's like, that, that's really a dumb question when it comes to health, planetary health, right? That's not, I would say it's a dumb question. This is not, that's not a particularly nuanced or accurate question, right? If I start a farm and, uh, all the beef I eat comes from a couple of cattle I keep there as I'm keeping 120 acres of forest and pasture, just chewing up carbon dioxide every minute of every day, my beef saving the planet. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's, uh, there's a way that we, um, focusing just on meat, uh, yeah. is in some ways, I think what's happened by the focus on, you know, because of cholesterol, cause that's where you find it. And, um, uh, anyway, so in terms of how we differ from cardiology, I would say that that uh, there is less of a concern about fat and fat calories. I would say that saturated fat and cholesterol are seen as a component of some foods that we recommend, like seafood or grass-fed beef, um, and, and uh, that in the quantities we're recommending them, they're fine. Um and maybe I shouldn't say we, I should say I, because my sure. I recommend people look for two to four seafood meals per week. And if it's shrimp and you're getting a, and scallops and you're getting a more high cholesterol meal, the data that as I've 
sort of looked at, and again, I'm not a cardiologist, is that dietary cholesterol, eating dietary cholesterol doesn't have a huge impact on your blood lipid levels. Um, and there are a number of other things that are more impactful. So it's more important that, you know, you're moving your body. And I think there's a lot of advice, you know, the same people are being like, you know, don't eat cholesterol. I've been telling everyone to drink two glasses of red wine a night. And yeah. I just like, come on, like, it's, it's such a garbage recommendation. That's just so not based in any good science. You know, you see, when you see medicine making the same recommendation over and over and over again by everyone that's based on one study, I mean, it's come on, like the, it's a lot, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's because I stopped drinking. I just, you know, we want to talk about the patriarchy. Like the the boys can have two, but the little ladies they can only handle one drink. But it's good for your heart. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> that that's all. That all makes sense. Um, I, I know you, you you took a different tack towards it, but I am curious to know your thoughts about like genetically modified foods and glyphosate and, and what that does. Oh, actually I'm also interested to know, and I know we only have a few minutes left, but there's a lot of talk about the mechanism of action that gut health and brain health are very oh, yeah, yeah, That was a great to- question, Ron. You asked the mechanism of action. First, I've got a video up on my YouTube channel, nine mechanisms of nutritional psychiatry. And, okay. and because one of the things that's hard to study about nutrition in general, like you can't double blind food, is there are a lot of yeah. different mechanisms, right? If you and I decide there's like a super special psychedelic diet and we start eating it and we feel great, we put on Instagram, we get a bunch of like psycho chompers or whatever we call our diet. <laughs> and, you know, that's not a good name for it, but you know, like, uh, I like it. We, we come <laughs> We, we, we come up with a dietary plan. I think Whole30 is a great example of this. Dallas and Melissa Hartweed come up with Whole30. They sort of tour CrossFit uh, gyms of the country. They build this incredible community around a really simple concept that take this garbage out of your diet for 30 days and see how you feel. Yeah. And people loved it. And part of what they loved about it is a feeling of community, the resources, the accountability, the recipes. And so one of the mechanisms of nutritional psychiatry in a lot of these food movements is that feeling we're all looking for of belonging, of being part of a community with similar values. And, and there's the, the wonder, the wonderful feeling of that, that tribal piece of us. Um, you know, the other mechanisms, the more biological, I think, start with dietary insufficiencies and uh, uh, and deficiencies. So if you look at some of the major uh, uh, mental health nutrients in, in eat to be depression and anxiety, I, uh, I use the 12 that we recognize in the antidepressant food scale, which is an open source paper we published in the World uh, Journal of Psychiatry. Uh, but if you, if you, you know, think about um, those uh, 12 nutrients and, and kind of focus on them is, is an initial step. I think that's one piece of nutritional psychiatry. So you think of some of those like magnesium, right? Really important nutrient. Half Americans don't eat the recommended daily allowance. Think about vitamin E, 96% of Americans don't meet the recommended daily allowance. And then again, we don't know where. And that's why we go to supplements, right? We're not saying, hey, where do you get your vitamin E? You get them in uh, you know, uh, almonds, olive oil, avocado, right? The, the sunflower seeds are a great source of vitamin E. Um, to help people with those food-based sources. I think there's the mechanisms around the microbiome, right? That as we eat more fermented foods, we have a, uh, there's really been very clear science now, a shift in how our immune system responds to kind of like turning down the alarms is one way to think about it. 
with the microbiome, of course, we have to think about inflammation, right? About a, a third to 40% of patients who have treatment-resistant depression have high levels of inflammation. And when we look at studies of people taking antidepressants, if you're taking any type of anti-inflammatory, you're twice as likely to have a response. Wow. And, and, and so there's something with inflammation that's very powerful. And of course, food is a major driver. You know, if you're just drinking milkshakes and eating French fries, as this really scary study on acrylamide and French fries, but you know, you're just, you're just really taking in things that, that you know, not in a hy uh, hysterical or fear mongering way, but really aren't good for your mental health and your brain. Um, right. So those, those are some of the mechanisms. I, I mean, I think some, some of the other ones are neuroplasticity is probably the most important one. We should just say that word, this idea yeah. that the human, you know, we're not as a psychiatrist, I'm not here sitting there thinking like, oh, Ronan serotonin levels are kind of low. We might perk those up. Like that's not how any of us have thought for the last 20 years. Like this whole, it's just like really, um, I think his reasonably misinformed paper came out about a year ago talking about how the serotonin theory of depression like isn't supported by evidence. And it, it, it's such a, it's actually been requested to be retracted because, you know, one of the wellness world jumped on this and they're like, oh, I told you SSRI doesn't work. And it's such it's where the wellness world, in some ways, the psychedelic world does such a horrible job understanding mental health stigma, right? At the one hand, they love to talk about like mental health, but then when they're busy promoting stigma in terms of meds suck, meds are toxic, it's just, it's sort of fascinating to me. Um, but anyway, in terms of mechanisms for nutritional psychiatry, neuroplasticity, and this idea that our brain is growing, it's this dynamic process and that you can encourage it with your daily activities. Why we emphasize mental fitness is your brain was designed to grow and repair itself. So if we can think about all the ways that we know that happens, psychotherapy makes your brain grow, a Mediterranean diet makes your brain grow, uh, you know, exercise makes your brain grow. So th those are some of the mechanisms that nutritional psychiatry either, you know, is, is directly responsible for the food feeling or the feeling, but, but also, um, some of the ways psychologically, I think it helps people. Appreciate that. And I think that's a very honest answer, but I'm not going to let you get away without commentating on GMO and, and oh, yeah, glyphosate. GMO. What are your perspectives? Yeah. You know, I mean, coming from Indiana and from farm country, it, you know, it, it, it's really, uh, and being a psychiatrist where I tried to be a little circumspect in terms of really hearing all sides of something. And so uh, I would say one, I, I think the people who are real experts in GMOs and glycophase like that are, are pretty few and far between, kind of like the people yeah. who are actual true experts on vaccines. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm you honored to be people on Instagram my, aren't true my, experts on vaccines? Yeah, well, my knowledge base is limited. I, I think that there is a, a piece of this that is often missed, which is how hard it is to grow food. And I think right. the part uh, that, that, that I do have some perspective on, I've not grown a lot of food, but I've grown more food than most psychiatrists, just like I've probably ridden more horses than most psychiatrists. And, uh, but, and what struck me every time I've tried to grow food or thought about scaling our farm and, and going into production is, is just how incredibly hard it is and how yeah. unpredictable it is. And it's just done nothing but give me respect for farmers. And so I think we have a large population of our farming community that is within a system that depends on petrochemicals and neurotoxins to grow food in a very specific way to make a lot of processed food. And the gap between this system, you know, and that more grain system we all fantasize about where I'm going to, you know, go down and hug my farmer and get some farm fresh eggs. And it's, it's, it's a pretty big gap. And part of the yeah. gap 
is all of us in the middle in a certain way, the convenience that we want, the cheapness. I just went camping. And so all of the food was like, you know, you have this little like tiny thing of fuel. We had like, we had our kids and another parent sent another child with us. I was like, I was like, thank you. But like, are you sure? <laughs> like, we're going pretty high up. Right. But, but, you know, the idea of every calorie you packed in, we thought about food. I mean, a chocolate bar lasted us the whole trip. Right. And we found out so differently. And so us in the middle of this, this way that can we direct more food dollars towards real food and, and, and in terms of the GMOs and, and, and filling with the genetic code of plants and animals, you know, I mean, I think the hard thing as a psychiatrist is you see how powerful human fantasy is in terms of telling the truth. And as all of our science fiction is focused on a dystopian society where AI robots grow our food and then take control and, and our, something goes a little fishy in our genetic code where we end up some zombie apocalypse, you know, it, it's kind of hard not to um, feel that there's probably some truth in that. And, and, um, and I think just as a country kid, you know, look, I just trust, I don't really trust people very much. I trust mother nature a whole hell of a lot. I'm really right. impressed with what she's done. I'm so grateful for all that she gives me and the wonder I see. And, um, but people I think are often very well intentioned, but, uh, fiddling with the genetic code concerns me a bit, you know, that's a, a very appropriate and thoughtful answer. Um, and with that, we've hit five o'clock and I know you've got lots of patience in, in the wings and important work to do besides talking to me. So I'm going to express my sincere gratitude. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for making the time. It's been illuminating, insightful, and thoughtful. And, uh, so thank you. Rona, thanks for being so vulnerable and open up. I hope I will be a safe guy for you to continue to do that with and vice versa. And I really appreciate you being so thoughtful and open with me as, We've started Spruce Mental Health here in Jackson as our um, our first foray clinically into offering responsible psychedelic medicine in terms of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And I just, uh, it was really, it meant a lot to me early in that process to speak with you and, and have your support and encouragement and sharing some of the lessons you learned. And I, I hope someday to, to have you see this place. And, and I hope that we can, um, you know, c continue in uh, really some of the movement that you tapped into. And, and also I want you to know that we're very inspired by your entrepreneurial spirit and that, um, yeah, I, I, I look forward to uh, being one of the clinics around the country that I think helps prove that you guys were right. There is a desperate need for this. Thank you. I remain here willing and able to support you in any way I can. So don't feel free, feel free to reach out uh, anytime any questions come to mind. Uh, I'm happy to help. All right. And, and then where's the address I send my lentil soup to? I just think you could use a couple of jars in the fridge. And I'll, I'll send it by email. No, okay. no one needs to hear that. Okay. All right. You send it. Awesome. Everybody, thanks for listening. And it's a treat to get some of your time and get to share some of nutritional psychiatry and psychedelic medicine with you. And I uh, really appreciate the opportunity, Ronan. I hope this is the first of many conversations, sir. And uh, I look forward to, to meeting you in person someday. Sounds great.